Well, good morning. Today is Wednesday, January 24th. My name is Scott Shera. I am Grace's dad. And I have a very important podcast to do as a monocast today. I want to go through the collusion that has happened in the medical industrial complex from the top down. And I want to show this. I, I put this all together in one presentation because I think it's real important for people to see this all in one uh, setting so you can get a perspective of what's what's going on and, and, and why. All right, so Don, can you bring up the open slide, please? So you can see the title I have, Proving Collusion from the Top Down. And you'll see they're all in on it right down to the, the root level. Uh, let's go to the second slide, Don. So how did this whole thing get started? And it's it got started, we'll go to the third slide right away, Don. It got started with this idea of eugenics. Uh, so eugenics is uh, basically man orchestrating survival of the fittest to his benefit. It's been around uh, before Jesus walked the face of the earth. Uh, however, the modern day eugenics movement was started by the United States in the early 1900s. And it is a sickening start. You know, they, they the, um, the people who run everything, they don't like the disabled, of course, and, you know, that applies to grace. Uh, the elderly are also useless eaters. And, you know, we're going to show that in a great degree of detail in this uh, podcast today. Let's go to the next slide, Don. So the current roots, as I said, is the beginning of the 1900s. What happens then is Hitler adopts the United States work on the sterilization program, the eugenics program. And of course, we do what we always do as a country, not necessarily you personally or me personally, but we shake our finger at Hitler and call him out on adopting eugenics. But what do we do? While we're shaking our finger, we bring back the top 1,600 German eugenicists through Operation Paperclip into our society. And COVID exposed what they were working on in on steroids uh, in the last four years. It's been going on for a long time. Hastening death, which is murder, has been going on for decades. And it got exposed with COVID if we're paying attention. Let's go to the next slide, Don. We're going to roll. I want you to play the clip first, and I'm going to come back to the slide and, and call out the details. Go ahead. Around the same time that John D. Rockefeller seized U.S. media, he also hijacked U.S. medicine. When it was discovered that drugs could be produced from petroleum, America's top oil mogul ordered his army of propagandists to invert reality accordingly. Medicines used for thousands of years were suddenly classified as alternative, while the new, petroleum-based, highly addictive, and patentable drugs were declared the gold standard. After buying the German pharmaceutical company that manufactured chemicals of war for Adolf Hitler, Rockefeller leveraged his political influence by pressing Congress to declare natural healing modalities unscientific quackery. Rockefeller then took control of the American Medical Association and began offering massive grants to top medical schools under the mandate that only his approved curriculum be taught. Any mention of the healing powers of herbs, plants, and diet was erased from most medical textbooks. 
Doctors and professors who objected to Rockefeller's plan were crucified by the media, removed from the AMA, and stripped of their license to teach and practice medicine. Those who dared to speak out were arrested and jailed. When evidence began to emerge that petroleum-based medicines were causing cancer, Mr. Rockefeller founded the American Cancer Society through which he suppressed that information. John D. Rockefeller is duly credited as the founder of the pharmaceutical industry and the reason that medical error is currently the third leading cause of death in America. This is not an indictment against doctors. More than anyone, they are under the stranglehold of the single largest lobbying power in Washington. Every year, the pharmaceutical industry spends at least twice the amount as big oil to influence laws, policies, and public perception. Thanks to Mr. Rockefeller, the architect of American monopolies, no industry has more power over our lives than Big Pharma. All right, I wanna spend a little bit of time on this slide. And I also wanna comment on one of the uh, things from that film and that medical um, negligence is the third leading cause of death. Obviously, those of you who have been following my work know that I've proven that medical murder is in fact the number one cause of death in the United States and it's by design. I did a seven part series on that topic and it's posted on Grace's main website and all the rumble links. It's seven different uh, monocasts and it is it's because this agenda, and you see at the top, I say it's Satan's minions. This is a satanic agenda. Who would come up with an idea to eliminate people's lives, hastening death, murdering them, other than Satan? Well, then he's got to have a number of people to implement. So those are the minions. So you know, at the highest level, the Illuminati, then the government, those who facilitate medical murder, the doctors, nurses, uh, the nursing home uh, workers, the hospice care workers, uh, those who went along with the unlawful mandates, you know, so that gets down to now a little bit lower level. And the worst to me is the pastors who lie about Romans 13 and 14. This quote from John Rockefeller on the right is, it should shock people into reality if you haven't heard it. Quote, some even believe we, the Rockefeller family, are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure, one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and am proud of it. So this is what we're facing, folks. This is a, this is a big deal. And it's, um, it's time that we all wake up because that's the starting point to be able to fight against what is going on. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. So this is an introduction slide. So how do they do how do they do this? They have to create a culture of death. And Satan has had 6,000 work years to work on this culture of death idea and what I'm going to do next is show how has he done that in our United States of America. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. This term banality of evil uh, you're going to see where this came from. Hannah Arendt, um, she she couldn't wrap her head around what happened during World War II, the first Holocaust. We're in the second Holocaust today. And what I believe is going on is that this eugenics philosophy 
has become so integrated into our culture that we're blind to it. Go ahead and play the clip, Don. The banality of evil is a term coined by the 20th century political theorist Hannah Arendt to explain and describe this specific kind of evil that was present in totalitarian Nazi Germany. What does this peculiar phrase mean? What are its implications? And how does it fit into Hannah Arendt's thought more broadly? My name is Dr. Moore, by the way. I teach great books at St. Thomas University. So the banality of evil is a term that comes from this very famous work that Arendt wrote called Eichmann in Jerusalem. The subtitle, in fact, is A Report on the Banality of Evil. In Eichmann in Jerusalem, our reports on the 1961 trial in Israel of the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. And in that work, Arendt argues, and this is perhaps controversial, that Eichmann is representative. The way he thinks, the way he acts is representative of the whole problem of totalitarian evil. So many people, so many seemingly ordinary people would participate in totalitarian regimes, would would follow orders and actively participate in crimes against humanity. This is Arendt's major question. How does that happen? And how can we prevent it from happening again in the future? So let's start with a quick definition of banality, because this is maybe an unfamiliar term. It's not something we use in everyday speech. So banality typically means trite or trivial or commonplace. And I think that third term, commonplace, is the one we want to focus on. Now, to say that evil is banal is somewhat jarring. Arendt, I think, means this term to be almost a paradox. It's, it's kind of like saying the normality of murder or the simplicity of adultery. But what Arendt wants us to understand is that when it comes to the evil of totalitarian regimes, there is something ordinary, everyday, about it. Arendt draws our attention to the fact that the Holocaust involves many ordinary processes, it requires paperwork and trains, transportation, government offices doing their job. And many of these ordinary features of human life, medicine, legislation, these are turned, contorted, perverted. Typically, when we think about evil, we're thinking about something out of the ordinary, unusual, maybe even extraordinary or unnatural. Traditionally, we understand evil to be something deviant or abnormal. And it's characterized by a bad will, by which we normally mean either a weak will, like someone who succumbs to temptation, or a malicious will, like someone who willfully does bad things. But this is crucial. Arendt says in the totalitarian context, evil has lost the character by which we recognize it. Totalitarian evil is something different. It's organized. In fact, it's orderly and even lawful. And it's defined by conformity, participation, and efficient systems like modern bureaucracies. And this kind of organized evil allows for evil on an unprecedented scale. But precisely because it's so orderly, lawful, it doesn't look like any evil we're familiar with. Let's go to the next slide, Don. So I have picked out four items here that really nail the banality of evil in America. The disabled abortion culture, which we're going to cover with the next slide, the nursing home culture, which we'll cover with the slide after that. Uh, the public fool system, of course, is, is a big one. That's how they indoctrinated all of us into uh, believing in the American dream and all kinds of lies. And then the last is was a shocker to me when I first saw this clip uh, because of the fact that it's 60 years old. And in this clip, you're going to see our propensity to follow orders even when they're wrong. And this is 60 years ago, so think about where things are at today. Go ahead and play that clip, please, Don. 
One of the most famous studies of obedience in psychology was carried out by Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University. He conducted an experiment focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. In 1963, Milgram examined justifications for acts of genocide offered by those accused at the World War II Nuremberg War Criminal Trials. Their defense often was based on obedience, that they were just following orders from their superiors. Milgram devised the experiment to answer the question. Could it be that those who committed such atrocities in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? Milgram wanted to investigate whether Germans were particularly obedient to authority figures as this was a common explanation for the Nazi killings in World War II. Milgram selected participants for his experiment by newspaper, advertising for male participants to take part in a study of learning at Yale University. The procedure was that the participant was paired with another person, and they drew lots to find out who would be the learner and who would be the teacher. The draw was fixed so that the participant was always the teacher, and the learner was an actor hired, pretending to be a real participant. The learner, who was an actor, called Mr. Wallace, was taken into a room and had electrodes attached to his arms, and the teacher and researcher went into a room next door that contained an electric shock generator and a row of switches marked from 15 volts, which is a slight shock, to 375 volts, which had a danger reading of severe shock, and up to 450 volts, which is enough to kill a human being. Get me out of here, please. Continue, please. Go right on. The experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. Participants were comprised of 40 males aged between 20 and 50, whose job ranged from unskilled to professional. They were paid four and a half dollars just for turning up to the study. At the beginning of the experiment, they were introduced to the other participant, which was the actor taking on the role as the learner. The experimenter, who was also an actor, was dressed in a gray lab coat played by an actor, not Mulgram himself. Two rooms in the Yale laboratory were used, one for the learner with an electric chair and another for the teacher and the experimenter with an electric shock generator. The learner, Mr. Wallace, was strapped to a chair by electrodes. After he had learned a list of paired words given to him to learn, the teacher tests him by naming a word and then asking the learner to recall its partner or pair from a list of four possible choices. The teacher is told to administer an electric shock every time the learner made a mistake. The learner gave many wrong answers on purpose, and for each of these, the teacher gave him an electric shock. When the teacher refused to administer a shock, the experimenter was to give a series of orders and prods to ensure that they continue. There were four prods, and if one was not obeyed, then the experimenter, who was called Mr. Williams, read out the next prod, and so on. The four prods were, firstly, please continue. Secondly, the experiment requires you to continue. Three, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Four, you have no other choice but to continue. So what were the results of the study? Morgan found that 65%, almost two-thirds of the participants, the participants who played the role as the teachers administering the electric shock, 
continued to the highest levels of 450 volts. All the participants continued to at least 300 volts. Mulgram did more than one experiment. In fact, he carried out 18 variations of a study, all with similar results. So this can't be taken as once-off random and a non-occurring event. Let's go to the next slide, Don. I want to start framing this banality of evil with first the disabled, then the elderly. And then you'll see the slide after that is the document that the earliest document that I found that that drove a stake in the ground relative to this eugenics agenda in the United States. So you see the quote here, uh, Sarah Palin said she was dead in shock diagnosis of Down syndrome. Those of you who know her know that she has a daughter with Down syndrome. And you know this idea of when abortion rates for people with Down syndrome in the United States is 90%, uh, she wasn't the only one who has a fear of the unknown. And this is where the banality of evil comes in. So what does that look like? As the description, the video on the banality of evil is evil is commonplace. So when the young couple now gets pregnant, they go in to see the doctor, and the doctor says, let's schedule your amniocentesis. And the only thing on their mind is, does my insurance cover it? They have no idea what they're even signing up for. They've been programmed to trust the white coat. And so they get their amniocentesis results. They sit down with the doctor and he says to them, I believe your son is, has Down syndrome and I recommend an abortion. And if they don't have roots, they're going to simply go along with the white coat. So every one of these people becomes a participant in this commonplace evil, and we don't even recognize it as evil anymore. That's That has been what has been set up, and it has been by design. All right, so let's go to the next slide, Don. So relative to the elderly, take a look at this statistic. Uh, this this is, is mind-blowing to me. So in 1960, the idea of putting mom in a dementia center or a nursing home facility, that was really unheard of. Everybody took care of their parents in their respective homes. Uh, look at what has gone on with the, the nursing home expenditures from 1960 to 2019, a 216 time increase in facility costs in a 59 year period. So now we have, you know, I remember this with my grandma vividly, uh, when they claim she had dementia, you know, she missed the mail one day and the kids, they all, my mom was already gone. So they asked me what was my thought. And, and to, as the representative uh, for my mom, I said, I, I mean, I don't see the purpose. But the kids all decided to put grandma, my grandma, their mom in this um, dementia facility. And we went to visit her then, you know, weekly. I volunteered that way hey, we could take grandma, but they wouldn't allow that. But regardless of that, um, we went to go visit grandma weekly and we get her out of there. We take her for drives, take her out to, to lunch. And um, it's, it's interesting, you know, how we, we take older people and we just kind of out of sight, out of mind. And you know, I wasn't planning on this. I'll just tell you a quick story about grandma. And so this was after the rest of the kids um, 
my mom grew up with 11 brothers and sisters. So all the kids said, let's, let's ship mom away. And, and so we went and picked grandma up. We took her out to dinner and had one of the times we had her out for lunch. Uh, they had a line in Kugel's canoe that you could win. And so you got a ticket every time you drank a beer, the ticket would be put into the um, container and then they draw out the, you know, the winner for this beautiful wood line and Kugel's canoe. So I said, Grandma, you know, I normally have a couple beers over lunch, but I'm going to have uh, a couple extra days. I, I want to win that canoe. And she said to me, so this is a woman in a dementia center. She says, how many canoes have you won so far? I thought, oh, my God, she tagged me. So, of course, I didn't participate then because Grandma caught me. So this is this is the, the elderly. We just want to do out of sight, out of mind. They're the wisest people on the planet. So it's no wonder why our society wants to get rid of them. All right, so then the next document, I, I said that this is the first document that I found. So this was in 1967, the public document planned to depopulate the United States. By the way, this whole PowerPoint will be in the show notes, so you don't have to screenshot this. But you can see here we have in writing in our own country this plan to depopulate the United States. And in the medical murder series, I expand on this, this quite a bit. All right, so now what's going on here? Let's go to slide 12, Don. Money has become the excuse to implement collectivism. So collectivism means the good, we got to do things for the good of the population versus the good of the individual. And we're, we're going to see that on steroids here in just a minute. But Don, can you play the clip first? Go ahead. Thank you for asking that because this is the 10,000 pound gorilla in the room that nobody's talking about. The third leading cause of death as published in the Journal of the American Medical Association is MD-directed treatments. This means you go to a medical doctor, an MD, he gives you a treatment and you die from it. According to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, 15,000 15, Medicare patients a month are killed by MD treatment and nobody goes to jail. A handful of terrorists fly two planes into the <coughs> Twin Towers 3,500 people die and we go to war. But 15,000 people a month are killed by medical doctor treatments and we don't bat an eyelash. This is because we have been, I don't want to say brainwashed, that's not the correct term, but we have been, for the last hundred years, um, kind of led into this false belief, you know, I think it was Marcus Welby that started it, that the medical doctor is king and knows everything about everything. And really, you need to just shut up and follow your medical doctor's advice. Most people in the United States have no idea at all of the history of the evolution of medicine in the United States. In the early 1900s, it was a relatively level playing field between the chiropractors, the osteopaths, the homeopaths, and the MDs. In 1915, 1920, there was something called the Flexner Report. The Carnegie Corporation funded this man named Abraham Flexner. He went all around the country. and He went on stagecoach and train and horseback. This was before the interstate highway system, right? took Flexner five years to do this. He went all around the country and did an inventory of all of the medical schools that prescribed drugs. He brought the list back to the Carnegie's, who owned drug companies, 
And then the Carnegies and the Rockefellers gave millions of dollars of free money to the medical schools and hospitals in the United States that were prescribing drugs. That was the beginning of the end. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. So Medicare and Medicaid set up this collectivism lie. And the, the lie is that non-contributing members of society don't deserve medical care. There's a couple of links on this this page. You can you can download those and get the the PDF document. I think is really a shocker, and you'll see the conclusion. This was a report by the Medicare trustees. It says the financial projection, projections in this report indicate a need for substantial changes to address Medicare's financial challenges. Well, substantial changes. You know, we know what that is now. Substantial changes means hasten death which hastening death means, means murder. So you think this through. Medicare and Medicaid is the ultimate bait and switch. We payroll deduct so that we can have, quote, free health care when we re retire. Remember, we paid for this privilege our entire life, but it's wrapped up in a bowl looking like our government is taking care of the elderly and the disabled. Then they program us to bow down to the doctor and they license the doctor so he won't be paid unless he follows CMS standards of care designed to hasten our death. CMS says there's 135 million Americans on Medicare and Medicaid. The cost for those people, the Medicare and Medicaid recipients is $3 trillion a year. That's 50% of our annual budget. That's how they have gotten this spirit of collectivism implemented, financial. It's too expensive to have these people, so we've got to hasten death. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. So take a look at these statistics, the cost. So this cost, you, you got to remember, these costs were done on purpose to facilitate this agenda. So in 1960, no expense for Medicare, Medicaid. 2019, we have a 10,000% increase. I mean, it's it's hard to even grasp this process. So from 1970 to 2019, in that 49-year period, a 10,000% increase in cost on purpose so they can use this as an excuse to hasten death of those participants on Medicare and Medicaid. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. This is the type of propaganda that we saw all around COVID, the terrible toll on COVID-19 on people with intellectual disabilities. What well, was on purpose? Of course, the people who were disabled had a six time more likely chance of dying in a hospital. Why? Because that's what they're, that's what they, these are not comorbidities. It was by design to take out the people on Medicare and Medicaid in the hospital settings. And it's not just about COVID, as you know, this is this is way beyond COVID. That's what I'm trying to get people to see. This has been going on for decades. And if we only focus on COVID and try to hold people accountable for what happened with COVID, we're gonna completely miss the mark. This is a much deeper agenda. It's satanically motivated and the people who need to be held to account are all across the board. This is this is it's way bigger than what people are understanding. All right, let's go to the next one, Don. 
the other statistic that is shocking to me is so relative to the elderly with COVID, the ones that were in the nursing homes had a 10 time more likely chance of death than the elderly who were outside of the nursing home. All right, so what's the reason? Doesn't make any sense. In theory, when you're in a nursing home, you're getting better care, right? I mean, that's the whole idea. We gotta get mom into the nursing home because we can't take care of her. Yet statistically, the number of deaths that they claim is relative or related to COVID was 10 times that of the ones compared to outside the nursing home. All right, so then we get to some um, solutions in quotes. Let's go to the next slide. Thankfully, we can rely on the federal government to protect us. All right, so we're going to drill this down now. So I've set up the philosophy, what's going on, or, you know, the philosophy behind it. But now we're going to drill down to how did they implement this? All right, so the first one, slide 18, of course, one of my favorite slides uh, introducing Obamacare. So Ezekiel Emanuel, he's the chief architect of Obamacare. And he said all the way back in 1996, that services provided to individuals who are irreversibly prevented from being or becoming participating citizens are not basic and should not be guaranteed. So they hire him to write Obamacare. Obamacare gets passed into law on March 23rd of 2010. And that laid the groundwork for the current degradation of healthcare set in motion over a hundred years ago by the Satanists. And it made it on fire, on steroids. So then now they can legally implement this agenda to kill us. So specifically, let's go to slide 19. Obamacare section 1553, it says, the government may not subject an individual, that would be a doctor, or an institutional healthcare entity, that's a doctor, nursing home facility, or hospice care facility, to discrimination on the basis that that entity does not provide any healthcare item or service furnished for the purpose of causing or the purpose of assisting in causing the death of any individual, such as by assisted suicide, euthanasia, or mercy killing. All right, why do we need a law like this? That doesn't make any sense. You don't need a law that protects a doctor who doesn't want to implement these agendas to kill unless those agendas to kill are already in place. And I, I cut and paste the administration of the law on the bottom because if a doctor does stand on his conscience and will not kill, his appeal rights are to the Department of Health and Human Services. You're gonna see where that fits here in, in a moment. Well, we saw what happened during COVID, the doctors and nurses who stood their ground, they wouldn't get jabbed, wouldn't participate in murder. They lost their licenses, were shunned. Uh, most of them now had to leave their professions. You know, Thankfully, some of them have um, become participating providers in, in in, in something different where they have private clinics and things like that, where they genuinely want to help people. And it's, it's fantastic when you see people uh, taking that step. All right, so let's go to the next government program, the Americans with Disabilities Act. This was a shocker to me. So when we filed Grace's lawsuit, 
uh, we thought first we were going to have a disability claim. And so then we got a legal opinion. And this legal opinion, I'm going to read, after a person dies in a healthcare or any setting, there is no possibility of securing what is called injunctive relief. That is a court order requiring that a defendant adopt new policies or practices to prevent the kind of discriminatory practices that led to the person's death. There can be no injunctive relief when there is no survivor on whose behalf the court can impose injunctive relief. No change in policies or procedures will provide a benefit for somebody who is deceased. So we got this legal opinion. I was shocked by it, but then I understand, all right, so this is one of the many laws that we think, wow, this is great. Our Congress passed a law for the disabled. Well, they didn't pass the law for the disabled. They passed it for themselves to make themselves look good. Uh, a funny thing happened. I had this in my my uh, my phone. I was shocked to to find it, but it fit like a glove here with this. So you see, this is a picture of a uh, men's restroom door. This is on the first floor of the Winnebago County Courthouse in Wisconsin. So of course, the first floor has the men's room, but then if you're disabled you've got to go to the fifth floor uh, if you want to use the restroom. All right, let's go to the next slide, Don. I'm not going to go through all of these laws, but these laws show that Congress, so people think, well, Congress can change this. Did my congressman actually know what's happening here? Well, yeah, they knew. They've been involved with this um, agenda to hasten our death the first law that was passed all the way back to 1969. And what they did, if you look at the chain of command that they implemented through Congress, they implemented that the Health and Human Services Secretary, this is on the right of the screen, can unilaterally declare a public health emergency. And once he declares a public health emergency, he can imp implement the PREP Act, which provides immunity from liability which then empowers the FDA to issue emergency use authorization drugs. So in the case of COVID, they implemented remdesivir and ventilators as the standard of care. And these two, the combination of those two have over a 90% kill rate. And of course, then they implemented vaccines that, uh, the, the insanity of the vaccines is, I, I shouldn't even call them vaccines, they're bioweapons. Um, you know, we're not going to go there today. But then ultimately, what happens? They have no consequences. So when people die as a result of the shenanigans, there's no consequences. And it's all by design. All right. So then the final nail in the coffin. Those of you who remember when Obamacare was passed, you remember, oh, like we're going to have death panels. So then there was a the uproar in Congress. Well, death panels were re-implemented on November 24th of 2022. Happens to be Thanksgiving Day. Uh, it's interesting how they do this. And when there's a public health emergency, what happens is the Health and Human Services Secretary can unilater unilaterally implement policy. So the death panels were re-implemented on Thanksgiving Day, 2022. All right, so then next slide, the devil is in the details. And now we're gonna drill down to the, the local or state level so that you can see, okay, they're really all in on this. So big picture, we can see uh, we have a eugenics uh, philosophy. The banality of evil has been on purpose implemented. Um, we see Congress is in on it. 
but then how did they do, how did they get everybody else in on it? And so you'll see by the next slides that they are colluding to cover up murder. All right, let's go to the first slide, Don. All right, we have the indoctrination documents. This document was written in July of 2011. You can see it's written by the Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin. This was written by two MDs as a training document for doctors treating people with Down syndrome. And what you can see first on the right-hand side, they just list all kinds of problems that people with Down syndrome have. They don't list anything good. I mean, Grace was the best thing that God ever gave us second to salvation. She was fantastic. So why do they do this? Well, because they want the doctor to get this impression that he can come in and save this family coming on a white horse. So you see what they write, the lifelong toll on families is high. Part of a robust plan of care includes acknowledgement of this toll by the healthcare provider. So look at healthcare provider, you can, you can help this family get rid of this burden of this person with Down syndrome. And so then they write the killing statement. So this gives them permission to kill. Whenever possible, decision makers for people with Down syndrome, these are the doctors, should be encouraged to use substituted judgment to make key palliative care decisions. All efforts should be made to determine the preferences of the patient. However, because of lifelong cognitive impairment, the views of the person with Down syndrome may not be known. Just wrap your head around that. I know the view of every single person with Down syndrome. It's no different than me. You want to live. Every single one of us is one car accident away from being disabled. So don't think that this just applies to people with Down syndrome. You know, obviously I, that's where my heart is because Grace had Down syndrome. This is a principle that they're using to hasten death. All right, let's go to the next one, Don. So medical insurance and the Center for Medicaid Service provide the excuse. And so you'll see in, in this clip, all the way back in 1981, the American College of Physicians and Blue Cross and Blue Shield launched the Clinical Efficacy Assessment Project to evaluate use of specific medical procedures and technology. What was the goal here? They wanted to develop standards of care which the idea of a standard of care isn't inherently bad, but the goal of them implementing standards of care was to hasten death and reduce costs. And I'll give you an example. Uh, those of you who have been following know that I had learned I had heart disease about six and a half years ago. And the nurse, uh, they wanted to put me on the stat and I started doing research, realized, oh my gosh, I can't be doing that. And the nurse pulled me aside. She was a good nurse and said, Scott, I want to tell you something you're not going to want to hear. I said, well, what is it? And she said, you have to go on the statin. I said, well, I don't have to go on anything. And she said, you don't understand. Our Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates are uh, based on what percentage of our entire patient population we get to follow the CMS protocols, the Center for Medicaid Service Protocols. I said, well, I'm not on Medicare and Medicaid. She said, it doesn't matter. Our reimbursement rates are based on the entire patient population that we can convince to follow these protocols. And so if you don't do this, and there's enough people like you that say, no, we have to fire you to keep our numbers up. So this is how they're doing it. All right, so then legislation, we'll go to the next slide provides the immunity. Um, 
uh, statute in Wisconsin is 448.30. And this is the statute that lays out the definition of informed consent. It, this is so strange to me as I learned this. I mean, we've been doing a, a lot of legal research because of working with the legal team. So to see how they pull this off. So section 448.30 lays out informed consent. Do we even need this? It, it violates God's law which is treat your neighbors yourself. I mean, think through, if you're a doctor, wouldn't you just want your patient to know everything and being, being informed? So why do we even need a statute? It also violates the state constitution, which says there shall be no ex post facto law, which means no law put in place after the fact. The constitution says that we have a right to life. So anything that takes away that right to life is illegal. Well, what is the reason they did it? Because they want to have total control over when it, over the implementation of the penalty. And the penalty, when a when a doctor violates informed the it violates the informed consent statute, you have to file a claim with the Department of Safety and Professional Services. You're going to see this in a moment, and that claim is evaluated by the medical examining board. That was the whole purpose of the statute, is so that there's no accountability because the medical examining board is made up of 13 members, 10 of which are physicians. So do you think that the physicians are going to rat on their fellow physicians? Of course not. And you're going to see that here in a moment. All right, so what's what's the reason for it? Let's go to uh, slide 27. Why did the legislator legislation provide immunity? Well, they claim that doctors won't come to your state unless they have liability project protection. This is right from one of the documents when we first filed our lawsuit the defendants had to respond by May 15th. You can see this document is dated May 15th. And you can see in the second paragraph, it says the legislature's purpose, this is the defense attorney writing this, the legislature's purpose in enacting a statutory scheme to govern claim for damages arising out of alleged medical negligence was to encourage healthcare providers to remain in Wisconsin by imposing certain limits on the causes of action that a patient or her family can pursue and on the types and amount of damages that can be recovered. So the legislature is behind this whole scheme to protect the doctors. All right, so let's go to the licensing board next. Slide 28, Don. This was the letter that was sent to me. I filed a complaint against Dr. Shokar. He's the one who gave grace the meds that killed her and put the illegal do not resuscitate order on her chart. I filed this complaint on December 8th of 2021. And you can see what I have underlined. The details of the complaint were reviewed and evaluated by a screening panel made up of members of the regulatory authority for the profession and or a department attorney. Based on the review and evaluation of the complaint and other materials, a decision has been made that the information presented does not warrant further investigation. I could hardly believe it. I went to the mailbox. It was on January 24th. We got this. I went to the mailbox. And I see, oh, this is from Department of Safety and Professional Services. I thought, we're going to get justice. I was not awake at this point. You know, this was the first document that started to open my eyes as to the agenda that's going on. Uh, at that point, I the complaint was was extensive. I mean, I had about at this point about a hundred hours of research in, so I had sent everything that we had. It was 
you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the meds killed Grace, that he put an illegal DNR on her chart. So how can there be uh, no further investigation? Didn't make any sense to me. How can the doctor have done no wrong? All right, so then you go to the next one, slide 29. A pharmacist asked me if she could review Grace's records and if she, um, after the review, thought that Grace was killed, she'd like to file a complaint. So she did. She filed a 100-page complaint on July 26th of 23 against the same doctor. And you can't make this stuff up. She got a letter dated September 21st. And if you look at the second paragraph of the letter, it is word for word identical to the letter I received. It's a form letter. And then she received a pamphlet with that letter, which I got the same pamphlet, that says there is no appeal process. And it's like, how is this even possible? All right, let's go to the next one, Don. That same licensing board then makes rules to protect the doctors. And I've shared this multiple times. You can see in the underlying paragraph, chapter 154 of the Wisconsin statutes does not apply to physicians operate in a hospital non-emergency room setting such as the one in question. This is relative to the DNR that was put on Grace. So they're saying, the licensing board is saying, a doctor in a hospital setting can put a DNR on any person they want unilaterally. And it's like, you can't make this up. So you can see what are the many motivations we have for filing a lawsuit. All right, so then what about Grace's death certificate? All right, let's go to the next one. The lead attorney encouraged me to get a hold of the coroner and have him do a review of the death certificate. Why? Because the doctor who gave Grace the meds and put the DNR on her was the one who signed her death certificate. And of course, the death certificate, the first cause of death, acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia, they caused it. By the drug combination, they caused the first cause of death. And the second cause of death, COVID-19 pneumonia, is a complete lie. It has to do with money. So Doug um, Bartelt is the coroner for Outagamie County, where we live. So I wrote him an email on October 3rd requesting a meeting. Let's just have a meeting to talk through this. I'd like to show you the evidence that we have and with the idea of changing the cause of death on Grace's death certificate. It took him all the way till December 18th to write me. And he writes, Scott, thank you for your patience while we awaited a review from our corporation counsel. Under the advice of corporation counsel, we will not be able to co comment or meet face-to-face -face regarding your inquiry. Oh, there was some back and forth in between when he's told me they're gonna have the counsel, the corporate counsel um, give advice. I said, they can come to the meeting. I don't care. I mean, I just would like to sit down with the person that is elected, my elected official, I just would like to sit down with my elected official. And uh, you can see he's from the medical profession. I clipped out an article about his background. And then you can see on the bottom, I wrote to him after he sent this and just asked if uh, he would look at this through the lens of what are we supposed to do? You know, when you are told to do something that is wrong and you don't stand for what God's law is, you're violating what's called the doctor, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. The lesser magistrate, so this man, the coroner is a lesser magistrate. He is at the root level and he can stop 
things that are illegal. So he has a choice. He could either go along with it or stop it. And he chose to go along with it, obviously. All right, so let's go to the next one, Don. You would think the district attorney would be interested. And so you can see the letter here dated July 19th of 2023. Uh, we have an attorney that wrote to the DA on our behalf. And I'm gonna read what he wrote. This will be the left-hand side. Mr. Scherer is alleging and everything we have learned supports the notion that Dr. Gavin Shokar unilaterally and without informed consent issued a do not resuscitate order on Grace. On October 13th of 2021, medical staff refused to attempt to revive Grace after her parents, who were also agents under a power of attorney, indicated that Grace was not DNR and pleaded for the medical staff to revive Grace. If this alone does not support a charge of first degree intentional homicide for the people involved, we would like to know why. Then go down to the bottom. I believe the only elements of statute 940.01 of the Wisconsin statutes are causes of death of another human with intent to kill. Grace died. Causation should not be difficult to establish given the documented pleas for intervention and the providers ignoring of these pleas. Intent to kill means that the defendant and the had the mental purpose to take the life of another human being or was aware that his or her conduct was practically certain to cause the death of another human being. It is hard to imagine that any medical provider could reasonably believe that his or her lack of action in Grace's circumstances would not be practically certain to cause Grace's death. And of course, we know this, but we had to request the meeting. So the, the district attorney's office wrote back, the death certificate states that the cause of death was acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia as a consequence of COVID-19. The official cause of death, or excuse me, this is the official cause of death. Obviously, Dr. Shokard did not cause Grace to contract COVID. It's like, oh my gosh, these people are supposed to be smart. Can't you connect the dots here? A doctor is not required to administer treatment she or he believes is not medically effective. This includes authorizing a DNR. The parties clearly had a dispute about how Dr. Shokar should treat Grace. Dr. Shokar did not abide by the wishes of the family. However, there is no law in Wisconsin that requires him to do so. So yeah, he didn't abide by our wishes, but there's no way to hold them to account. Uh, so. I'm showing all of this because I want people to get a grip on the idea that they are all in on it. All right, let's go to the next one, Don. I also filed a complaint with the United States uh, Department of Justice. And of course they write back, thank you for submitting. And then they, when they got around to reviewing the complaint I submitted on December 8th of 21, they said, after careful review, of what you submitted, we have decided not to take any further action on your complaint. So then I took the complaint to the local um, Disability Rights of Wisconsin organization, and you know they had a similar <laughs> opinion, which shocked me. I thought, well, don't you don't you want to have this not happen to somebody else who's disabled? Well, then I dug into it and you can see what I concluded is that these state agencies are federally funded. So everybody's towing the line. All right, let's go to the next one. 
the Joint Commission is the accreditation organization for hospitals. So I thought, oh, let's file a complaint with the Joint Commission. At least we have an opportunity to um, have their accreditation uh, be taken away. So accreditation is very important to them. So I filed a long complaint with them. Uh, you see that they say thank you for submitting the complaint October 31st of 2022. And then they gave me a form letter, um, basically nothing. All right, let's go to the next one, Don. So what is the, what's the bottom line? God warned us that America will lead the world astray. Revelation 18.23, for your merchants were the most important people of the earth because with your pharmacia, they deceived all the nations. So that's what's going on. We are deceiving all of the nations. So what does God want? Let's go to the next slide, Don. What I see is COVID was a warning to repent. And then after we repent, what are we supposed to do? Well, there's a couple of quotes here that I think are fantastic. Evil prevails when good men do nothing. Uh, James 4, 17. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. And then last, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. So we should be taking action against the evil, but repentance comes first. And then the last slide, where does Grace's murder fit into all of this? I mean, only God knows. I'm God's still on the throne. I believe that all the way. I don't know what he has in mind. I know he opened up the door for us to file the lawsuit. Uh, we have an opportunity to expose evil with the lawsuit. More importantly, we have an opportunity to expose the satanic agenda and the ultimate um, reason behind all of this, which is a spiritual battle for souls. I want to just share something in closing. Uh, a friend of mine wrote this to me on Monday, and I think it really uh, spells out what is going on. And she wrote, I did not think it would be this hard to end genocide. We are all just one car accident away from the hospital protocols being unleashed on us, our families, and our friends. I don't understand why the police, sheriffs, and district attorneys are not doing their jobs. Instead, you have heartbroken people begging for attorneys to take their cases. When in our U.S. history do you call an attorney to stop mass killings. You call the police. Arrests are made. Investigations take place. And justice is served. So why isn't any of that happening? It's because this has been the plan all along, folks. And God is calling us to repentance. And he's calling us to get to know him on a personal level right now. Thanks for listening today. I appreciate everybody who is behind us and following what we are doing.